And hello to all you faithful patrons of the Shea Bippy Bar. I am your co-host, Mike DeBate, and I welcome you to Shea Bippy. The bar is now open today. And as always, I am joined by my esteemed co-host, my great friend. He is the sonny to my Jimmy Whispers. My friend Thomas Murphy joins me today in Shea Bippy. And Murph, we've got a good one on tap today, no question about it. We do, man. The, the the people have spoken once again, and they they picked the French Connection. And um, when when I put this out there, a lot of people were saying, "Well, that's not a mob movie, Murph. What are you doing?" That's a, well, sure it is. I think it is. Don't you think it is? I mean, the, the mafia actually it doesn't play a huge role in this, but it plays a role. It does. And when you talk about the genre of not necessarily mob, but organized crime and a a drug bust that was taken down by a connection that had French underworld connections as well, I think mm-hmm. it definitely fits. And I, I absolutely consider this a part of the genre. Is it necessarily organized crime in the mafia, the way we've described it in Godfather, Goodfellas, movies like that? No, it isn't. Um, is it sort of like the either the Russian syndicate or the uh, the British syndicate that we've broken down in movies like Lock Stock and um, Eastern Promises. Not exactly, mm-hmm. but it does, I think, lend itself very well into this genre. So I'm excited. This is one of my favorites. Uh, definitely uh, a movie that uh, I find myself watching at least once a year. Um, and just two, two of my favorite all-time actors are in this as well. So uh, this was one I was looking forward to, and I, I for one, was really happy that uh, the public selected this. So was, public has spoken, and here we are at the bar to break it down. Yeah, was this a movie that, that you enjoyed as a kid, or was it one that you got into and appreciated more as you were an adult? I got into it more and appreciated it more as an adult. This was a favorite of my father's, and he used to watch it constantly when it was on. And when I was a kid, when I was a kid, you know, I would see it, and I would. I thought the car chase was great, and we'll get into the car chase in a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here. But at the same time, it was also a movie that I looked at, and I was like, okay, well, you know, it's yeah, all right. There's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of back and forth, and I don't think I really understood it fully until I started to get older into my teenage years and even into my early 20s. And then I really started to appreciate this movie, the performances that were given, just everything about it really broke, you know, down in terms of what my expectations were of this film. And I I really, really do. Now it's really become one of my favorites. And uh, I, I find myself taking the opportunity to watch it whenever I could. And uh, usually I wait until the winter to watch a movie like this. It's one that, you know, you just love to, you know, just sit and, and, and yeah. relax, you know, and and, uh, and and really enjoy it. But uh, the fact that we were able to break this down accelerated that a little bit, and I certainly wasn't going to uh, argue the point. So. No, me either. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a fine choice by our listeners, and I was, I was happy to do it again. And like I said, I didn't even mind renting this movie. It wasn't anywhere on free TV, and I don't own it. Because every once in a while, you'll catch it on, and you'll say, "Okay, it, it's sitting there as you know, on on cable somewhere, sometime." And you and you sit down and you watch it. It's a good movie, like you say, in the winter. It's got that that cold, you know, New York gray '70s bombed out Beirut thing happening. Yep. And you, you just you you just sit back and, and enjoy it, and you remember the bad old days. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. It, it really, know? really does. 
it truly and truly does. It's got a darkness to it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also it also has a um, a realism to it. And it was yeah. actually, believe it or not, this was actually the first R-rated film to win the Academy Award. I don't know. If was I it really? That, nice tidbit. It was. This oh, was the first we, we R- love R-rated we love movie. when. When you slide the peanuts down the bar and share those, man, fuck yeah! Absolutely. No kidding, the first a... R-rated movie to win an Oscar. First R-rated movie to win an Oscar, and you know, I think it really started an erosion of of the type of movie that you were going to see from here on in, and it really set the table for a lot of the movies that you saw in the seventies, in the seventies, yeah, seventy-one. And at the time, even the violence, uh, the realism of what was brought to the table was sort of it was it always sort of had a romanticized feel to it even when mm-hmm. they tried to be as realistic as possible i think of arthur penn's work and bonnie and clyde kind of being yeah. the table for a movie like this and things of that nature where they really tried to get a lot more realistic in what was portrayed on film but this i think was the first one that the academy really looked at and said this is the type of movie that we're going to see from here on in. So, yeah, this was the first R-rated movie um, for our listeners as well. The French Connection drug bust that inspired the film. This was based on a true story, folks. Yep. Um, it took place in 1961. Now, this movie, for anybody that's seen it, took place in 1970-71. The reason why they did that is because they didn't want to have to take a period up. off of the streets. Yeah, they yeah. didn't want to have to period this up, take a decade off the streets in New York. Uh, they had a low budget, so they really didn't have the opportunity to um, film on location and really take that time period back 10 years because it really would have been a significant drop to do that. So they set it in modern times, and that's the reason why you see it. But this drug bust actually took place in 1961, um, it was actually done by a couple of uh, by a couple of detectives. Uh, it was done by a couple of detectives named Eddie Egan and Sonny Grosso, who, in the movie, you'll notice it's Jimmy Popeye Doyle played by Gene Hackman and Buddy Russo played by uh, Roy Scheider. And these are the two real life cops that Scheider and um, Hackman embody. And Hackman, it's one of his, his most indelible roles. He is very much known for a lot of films, but this is one of the ones that really is, is a hallmark on his on his you know pantheon. And I always say I don't want to talk right. about obituaries or anything like that. Hackman's mm-hmm. one of my favorites. I, I always I, I I really like him, and no matter what, usually and no he, matter what he's in. And he also took home an Oscar for this, didn't he? He did. Absolutely, he did. And Roy Scheider was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor for this yep. as well. So there was a lot of uh, acclaim that was put on this movie by the Academy. And uh, Scheider and Hackman actually shadowed Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso, who do have a cameo in this movie as well, believe mm. it or not. That's how that's how tied into this film that they were. Um, they did that for a month. They shadowed them for a month to get the feel of their characters. Yep. And Hackman Simpson actually and Klein. Became, they played yeah. Simpson and Klein in the movie. Absolutely. So. They, they, yeah, they truly did, and it was it was great to see them get their moment in the movie as well. And Hackman, I remember describing uh, in a uh, in a subsequent interview that I think he gave with Inside the Actors Studio one time, where he was so disgusted at the sights he saw during the patrol. Um, in one incident, he actually had to help restrain a suspect in the squad car, and he was worried and kept complaining to Egan and uh, um, and Grosso uh, for at least you know at least a few hours um, that he was worried that he was actually going to be sued for impersonating a policeman and they assured him that nothing like that would ever happen but that's how <laughs> into the character and that's how um unnerved uh, hackman was by what he saw and Scheider uh, had uh, given similar sentiments as well so 
definitely a, a, a great uh, a film to break down. We'll get into the X's and O's of how this is going to break down in just a moment. One quick tidbit I just wanted to share with everybody. Um, this movie is noted for its car crash, its car crash and, and chase scenes. Um, one of the best in movie history, yeah. and Murph and I will break that down. Another movie that is so indelible for its car chase is 1968's Bullet by Steve McQueen. And yeah. believe it or not, Murph, Steve McQueen was actually offered the role of Popeye Doyle before Gene Hackman was. Um, for scheduling of course conflict. he was, because, yeah. you know, yeah. it was 1971, and, and you got a movie going, and that's what you do. You call up Steve McQueen and you say, please. <laughs> Absolutely. And McQueen would have been excellent in this role. He would have. Another, another iconic actor, one of the best at what he did. And he was actually a little bit worried about typecast, and he used, um, I think, scheduling conflicts to turn it down. But uh, he would later say, he'd later go on to say that he was uh, he was actually – sad that he turned this role down he believed that this would have been a a great film for him but uh, did acknowledge that hackman probably paid the role a little bit better than he would have believe it or not peter boyle actually was offered the role of popeye doyle as well uh he was a little bit disgusted by some of the things he read in the script and that's the reason why he turned it down really for those of you that yeah and, wow. Uh, for some of you that don't know, I, I know most people probably do remember Peter Boyle as Frank Barone on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yep. He was also the monster in Young Frankenstein. Great character actor. Fantastic. Uh, he would have been great in the role as well, but this, this role definitely belonged to Gene Hackman. It did. He really made it his own, and he put his stamp on, um, on the 70s. Uh, right here and with his career with with this film as I said you know he did win an Oscar for this um, it's the first movie that I can remember seeing with him in it I'm not sure what he was in before it I'm sure there's the list is is very long but uh, this is this is iconic for him there, there's that one role that that defines your entire career and um, it, it happened for for uh, for him, almost right out of the gate, I think, with the French Connection, and he lived up to his hype for the rest of his career. Yeah, he did. And he's actually gone on record as saying a lot of similar things, that this movie really put him on the map, and he realized that he needed to be on his game from there on in, and he truly was. And Hackman mm -hmm. had an iconic, legendary career. Again, like I said, I've pontificated several times. Even in Young Frankenstein. That, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the blind man in Young Frankenstein. Oh, you got to love right. that. I was going to make espresso. I was going to make espresso. How could you not love that film? <laughs> How could you not love that film? You know, he takes out the cigars, lights Peter Boyle's finger on fire. I mean, it's it, it's great, you know. It's, oh, God. Uh, and, and it's coming up to that time of year where Young Frankenstein can be watched over and over again during the spooky time of year in, in October, so um, yep. that's one I'll definitely have to check out again. Another one of my favorite comics. I'm sorry. Well, I, I pulled us right off the topic there, didn't I? You Fuck. did not. No, Shut it, up, Murph. No, it all comes back in because Hackman is a Boyle was offered the role. You know, Frankenstein yep. comes back in. No, it's it's all connected. It's it's all part of the ether. It's my all the, it's all the connection. Job. It yeah. is. It's all and again six degrees of the French connection. connection. Right there, brings it right back. So no, we're we're right on target as always. Um, but uh, the movie is set. It starts in December of 1970 in Marseille, France, and we start with seeing a plain a plain clothes cop. He's observing a former longshoreman turned entrepreneur, and his name is Charnier, and that's played by Fernando Rey, who does take a great part in this film as well. And he's 
notice he's talking to some, you know, these guys aren't exactly pillars of the community that he's talking to, but Charnier is being tailed by an undercover cop uh, because he is a kingpin in smuggling heroin overseas. That's a fact that ends up costing the cop his life. Uh, the cop later returns home, and he ends up being shot in the face by Pierre Nicoli, uh, who is Charnier's henchman. And that, I think, really sets the tone for the type of movie that we're about to see. Right. It lets you know that this is not going to be a sugar-coated film. It lets you know that this is not going to be for the faint of heart. This is going to be a movie that's going to hit you between the eyes with seedy underworld of drug smuggling. Right. And we also, and I love how the film immediately at that point cuts to the cops that we're going to see in this film. And we get, and, and the action shifts at this point to Brooklyn. Uh, and we see a corner Santa Claus. He's chatting with some children outside kind of a seedy bar uh, while a hot dog vendor is, you know, making his, his sales. And that Santa detective is Jimmy Popeye Doyle played by Gene Hackman. And the vendor, the hot dog vendor, is his partner, Salvatore Russo, who is also called Buddy in the film, and that is played by Roy Scheider. And um, the uh, um, Popeye calls him cloudy throughout the entire movie, which I think is, is, is also you know a good indication of the two of them and how just how the movie shakes out and how the, the relationship between these two characters is built. And they're two narcotics cops. They're staking out a bar, and they're hoping to find a pusher named Willie and Popeye sees Willie in the bar, passing some drugs to a companion and he starts singing to the children and he's trying to keep his cover intact. Um, and his signal to cloudy cloudy enters the bar and he grabs Willie's buddy. Willie sees the commotion suddenly flees outside and Popeye and cloudy go on hot pursuit and they corner him in an alley. Willie right. slashes cloudy's arm with a knife and he, and he runs. It's a concealed knife that he, that he does this when and he runs off uh, the two chase him on foot to a deserted lot where he trips and falls, and he's beaten by both Doyle and by uh, by Russo. Um, and then Russo kind of steps in and asks Doyle to stop and kind of yeah. says, you know, it's, it kind of he's had enough type thing. And once the two cops calm down, they interrogate Willie, trying to get more information on his drug connection. And this in my opinion, these two scenes between the opening scene with uh, uh, the killing of the cop by Sean, by Shania's henchman and the introduction of the two cops, Russo and Doyle, I think really sets the tone for the film, Murph. Uh, what was your reaction when you saw these two scenes and what type of movie we were in for at this point? I knew I was in for a, a, another great William Freakin movie. Um, he, he, he threw right in your face what was going to happen and what was... Um, he got the backgrounds of, of everybody that the main characters of this film encompassed in, within the first, what, 10 minutes, 12 minutes. And with a cast this size and a film this size, how often does that happen? Not often at all. Um, it, it was beautifully done. You knew exactly what you were in for. This movie was, while there are, the, the, the cast is amazing and it's, it's vast, this movie was going to be about um, these three people um, and how and he set up perfectly who they were and how ruthless they were, even the cops, because both these cops were 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 fringy um, narc cops that would do anything to um, to not only get the person that they're involved with, but but they were obsessed with with getting drugs off the street. 
and um and Friedkin set that up perfectly and he did it in an amazing fashion um we were talking about the dialogue earlier this movie is more about this, this movie I'm sorry we talked about the chase scene earlier the car chase this this entire movie is a chase movie you know, we, we call it a, a genre, but it, it's always chasing. Somebody is chasing the Lincoln. Somebody is chasing, you know, the drugs. It, it, it's a chase flick like you see nowhere else. And I, I can't help but, but just love it year after year after year. We just keep going back to it. Um, what freaking was able to do? left audiences stunned and i don't mean that as a, a cliche it's it's literally true in a sense the the whole movie is is as i said it's a chase it opens up with a shot of the french detective keeping the continental under surveillance and from then on the smugglers and the law and the cops are endlessly circling and sniffing each other out this is just the case that speeds up you know it, it speeds up sometimes and as the celebrated car chase sequence it just it goes uh you know right to a climax that we can't really um put into words here on the radio um and for for lack of a of, of a better term you know i freaking set the world on fire with this movie as as mike said earlier that you know he showed the world this is what cinema was going to be like going forward and um he wasn't going to pull any punches you know for far too long um in in the movies they did have to pull those punches the 70s wiped that away and freaking did that beautifully you know with this film and that's why they they it won the oscar welcome back <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely agreed, and thank you for the save. Uh, a true professional is uh, my co-patron here on the, uh, the Shea Bippy Mob Bar. Uh, definitely love the fact that he was able to pick up that slack, and I apologize for that, folks. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but uh, I've got Jimmy Whispers on it. We're going to find out what happened here. We're going to find out what's going on. Maybe even Frankie Coffee Cake might have to get involved. JoJo the Whale. we got everybody here at the Shea Bippy Bar on this, and we want to find out what the hell's going on. I monologued on. for a minute, man. We're good. We're good. <laughs> and Eddie but absolutely but in, in any, any case, case in any case you are freaking really did he he set the tone early in this movie and he 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 let the audiences know exactly who they were dealing with and who exactly the focus of this film was going to be on it's going to be these three people it's going to be um buddy it's going to be popeye and it's going to be um god i can't pronounce the name elaine chenere the 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 French drug lord that that was trying to get the um all this heroin into the United States where all the big money was because I guess there was no big money in heroin in, in France at the time and you just had to you know get it to the to to the U S market <laughs> absolutely absolutely no you're definitely right and that and you know we uh, we see in that when this when the action shifts back to France and uh, uh, 
and uh, Charnier finishes a day of overseeing his dock work. He drives home to a seaside villa, his yep. young trophy wife, and obviously this is a guy who has expensive tastes, and so does she as well. <laughs> no question yeah. about it. Um, you know, they know that they're going to be coming to the U.S. Charnier late, later meets his gunman, Nicolie, at uh, it's kind of like a rendezvous point um, of an acquaintance. Uh, that acquaintance is TV personality Henri Devereaux. And Devereaux is traveling to the U.S. to make a film and has decided to help Charnier's smuggling effort because because he needs the money. And Nicolie believes that Devereaux is, you know, is, is a mistake, but he's reassured by Charnier that this guy's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. At that point, we start to see the plot develop. And then we move back to New York City, where Popeye and Russo are signing off for the night. And Popeye takes Russo to a nightclub. And again, how could we not do this movie on this? The nightclub that he takes them to is called the Shea. I mean, come yeah. on, this is, it just fits right in. It, it, and it gives, it really lends itself into why we uh, we ended up chronicling this on this the Shea. This is why five. you get the big money, and I'm just the, the eye candy around here. This <laughs> is great. <laughs> well, we need the eye candy, too. Don't, don't, uh, don't sell yourself short. You're a tremendous slouch, my friend. Um, but... Uh, um, but uh, Popeye notices one table in particular, and uh, there's a lot of narcotic connections at this and organized crime. And they're being entertained by a guy that is seems to be pretty charismatic. Popeye describes him as a greaser, which, you know, of course, yeah. <laughs> as an Italian. It's, it's the 70s, folks, you know, please let that. it go. But, uh, you know, compared to some of the language that's used in this movie, I think that's fr- uh, that's pretty mild. So I yeah. think we'll be able to uh, uh, to digest that. And Popeye's kind of, you can see Hackman playing this perfectly. You can see the eyes of him just sensing out that there's some sort of drug deal. There's something going to go down. Something's yeah. underway. And he kind of, re- I don't, I don't want to say reluctantly, but he does persuade Russo to help him tail him and his companion, which uh, is, you know, blonde with very big hair. And, you know, you can, you can see the two of them. They're, they're conspicuous. There's no question about it. And throughout the night, Doyle and Russo tail the two. They watch them drop off the suitcase in Little Italy. Then they watch them switch cars. And then early the next morning, um, uh, they switch cars from an attractive coupe, which is really a pretty nice car, to a really bad beat-up sedan. And then they drive to a candy store and a luncheonette, and it's called Sal and Angie's. And it's in a pretty, uh, you know, I would say low to middle class area of Brooklyn. Um, And they look inside and the couple's preparing to open for the day and they look like just a normal couple at that point. And Popeye and Russo make an interesting uh, observation here. The blonde from the night before is now a brunette. It's determined that she wore a wig from the night before. So now they're starting to smell something in the water. And Now Russo and Doyle know they're onto something here. And they, they stake out the candy store for a week using audio surveillance. Um, Russo poses as a photographer. He goes in to question Angie. And, you know, he tries to uh, to get her and say, oh, I'd love to shoot you sometime. You know, how about it? I think she says, I'll do it for 200 And he goes, no, I can't afford that. $50 for an hour. Take it or leave it. <laughs> and, you know, he's really kind of showing what type of back and forth that he can use. And, you know, he's, he's trying to keep his cover intact. Right. And, uh, they're you know, showing the, him that uh, he's, he's a professional, man. This is not, you know, he's not out here on a limb, some guy trying to make a name for himself. He's been doing this for a long time, and um, and you you aren't gonna, you know, you're not gonna blow his cover by getting him to say, sure, two hundred bucks. 
Exactly, exactly. In other words, he can't be way too agreeable to this. If he is, right. that's automatically going to red flag something. He's going to stand his ground. He's going to be very, uh, you know, matter of fact about it and, and show that. And, and uh, Scheider really, I close my eyes and so, see the candy shop. God, I know. So can wow. I, sitting at the yep. lunch. Yeah, exactly. And um, Scheider, I think, was brilliant in this film. As much as I'm going to throw bouquets at Hackman's feet, because I do, I'm a big fan of Gene Hackman. Um, right. I think Scheider, I think some of the best work that he's ever done, and really one of, one of my favorite actors from this time period. Oh, uh, sure. The, the 70s was totally total white. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he was, Chorus he was Line. I don't know if Chorus Line was in the 70s, but it was close enough. And um, Yeah, Chorus Line. Was it a Chorus Line? or what? No, 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 no. All That Jazz. No, I'm Chorus sorry. Line was Michael Douglas, yeah. Yeah, yeah Chorus, Chorus Line was Michael Douglas. Douglas but, all That Jazz yeah. was uh All That Jazz was Roy Scheider. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There I and, go again. Um, Yep. No, it's okay. It's it's fine. See, we bring it, but we bring it back together, and we give it all that nice bow at the end of it. But um, yeah, again, uh, another. I think some of the great, uh, you know, work that uh, that he's done. But Doyle and Russo are able to combine records and determine that the greaser that they saw that night is indeed. Al Boca, and it's played by Tony Lobianco, who I think takes an amazing part in this film as well. Tony Lobianco is a good character actor from this time period. Uh, he's been in a lot of different movies, but this is probably the one that he'll be remembered for as well. And his wife, Angie, playing by Arlene Farber. Um, it's sort of, it lends itself into the, the part that basically Doyle and Russo come to the conclusion that this candy store, this luncheonette, can't possibly um be their only source of income and, right and at that and at that point we start to see the evolution of sal and how much of a beloved character he is we find out that he is involved in a lot of different uh, uh you know shady businesses shady characters even indicted at one point but for some reason no one just wants to put this guy away because he's so damn likable <laughs> and that's <laughs> and, and, and in his description to doyle uh russo scheider's character uh, basically said that he says that you know they just there's, there's no way they want to put them away they just they love this guy way too much right he he keeps he keeps the peace he everybody he's always got a smile on his face and he's he's he walks up and he hugs freaking detectives and cops and shit there, there there's no reason there there's no reason because all all most people think is he's he's pumping junk into people's arms that you know it it doesn't really matter nobody cares about and that that was the um unfortunately the 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 prevailing attitude of a lot of the 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 cops in new york at the time it, it with the exception of Popeye and buddy yeah couldn't it's true. It really, yeah it really is it's, everybody it's was on the take everybody was you know getting a piece of something except for these two who were who were real cops exactly and then that's one of the big reasons why these guys were able to make the bust that they did and bring these guys down. And again, you know, we are going to get into that in, in just a little bit, but uh, we find out a little bit more about the Boca family. We even find out about Sal's brother, who's a garbage man in training at uh, the facility. I think it was in the East River. I think it was he was uh, um, uh, where he was his brother Lou, uh, who's played by uh, by Benny Marino. And it is again revealed that all the Bocas have a criminal record. They all have you know a past and they also discover that the candy store, that luncheonette, is regularly visited by uh, underworld figures from New Jersey. And Sal does make numerous trips to an expensive condo in Manhattan. And that 
condo is owned and is the domicile of lawyer Joel Weinstock. And Weinstock is a, is a known drug financier who bankrolled a heroin shipment from Mexico. And then we're introduced to, uh, to Weinstock as well. So now the pieces are starting to fit in. And now you can start to see this plot thicken and thicken right. as time goes on and how many layers there are to this um, underworld and how many uh, layers there are to this drug trafficking um, uh, scandal. I don't want to say scandal, but drug trafficking ring that uh, uh, Doyle and Russo are working so hard to uncover. So Doyle and Russo raid a, a junk house and there's one patron that uh, that gets in there, talks back at Popeye, and it almost looks like Popeye's going to go rough this guy up a little bit, and it yep. looks like there really is some going to be some back and forth here, and it actually comes in that when they take him into the men's room, it's a cover. Uh, Popeye wants to debrief this guy as his informant, um, and he wants to debrief him, get a little bit of information, and his informant reveals that a big shipment is due within a few weeks that will satisfy everyone in the city in order to make this work that's exactly what this guy has to tell him and Doyle essentially gets the uh, uh, the information that he needs and then he's got to make the ruse look convincing so he asks him where do you want it <laughs> the guy goes oh, okay right over here and Doyle just rears back and just whacks this guy in the jaw <laughs> right <laughs> you know maybe a bit too enthusiastic for the uh, the taste of the fact that this guy is actually an informant but Doyle is a, is a method cop. He's not going to blow his cover. He's going to make no. this look as convincing as possible. He doesn't want to go give the guy a little love tap on the face. So everybody's going to know this is his informant. He's got to give him a really, really good shot. And he did. He got a really good shot in here. But ultimately, Doyle got the information that he needed. He did. He 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 played it. To, he played it perfectly. He he kept. Um, who was it? Who's the the God? I'm trying. Alan Fan. Alan Fan played the informant. Alan Fan, and, uh, yep, he did. Alan Fan yep. played the informant, and uh, he, he was fantastic. And 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 Doyle didn't want to hang his his you know his his informant out to dry, and he he just he just knew what he had to do, and and so did uh, so did Al, you know. So it, that's the way it worked out, and it, it's and then we move on. Absolutely. And now we get a really good look at Popeye's boss, who Murph alluded to earlier, is Walt Simonson. And Walt Simonson in this movie is played by Eddie Egan, the real white inspiration for Popeye Doyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he's his boss is reluctant to let Russo and Doyle continue on with this investigation. He continuously reminds Popeye of a previous case where his hunches have backfired. But with Weinstock, uh, the Police really have wanted to go after Weinstock for a long time. Um, if they know that he's potentially involved and they trust his instincts on this one, they know that Doyle is pretty much onto something. Simonson relents and he goes to court for a wiretap on the Focus House and the candy store and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, the BNB. And Dangerous Drugs. <laughs> and Dangerous Drugs. I love how they throw that in there as well. Uh, it's, it's funny like how some of these acronyms have evolved over the years, my friend. Right. But that was uh, That's what it was called. It was the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Now yep. they become involved and they assign Agents Muldrick and Agent Klein. And Agent Klein is actually played by Sonny Grosso, who is the character that Roy Scheider is involving. That's the real life Russo. So yep. that's how that's how this is kind of going uh you know through the uh, uh the the um 
the motions here. And I think it's it's really, really great to see these guys that were actually involved in this bus get a chance to get their moment in this movie. I thought it was a, a great, uh, you know, and they nod did well. and a great... Uh, and they did. They did well. I mean, don't forget, these guys are cops. They're not professional actors here. Right. Um, it really is it, it, unbelievable, like, how many times you hear about cops that are they're cops, they're actual, like, either consultants on, on the film or anything like that, and they find their way into movies, and they actually do a great job. I'm going to go way off topic here, but one of the ones that I wanted to mention was Gil Hill. Uh, people don't probably know him. The late Gil Hill was the actual, um, it was an actual cop in Detroit. He mm-hmm. was hired as a consultant on Beverly Hills Cop. Um, Martin Brest, who directed Beverly Hills Cop, and Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, who were the producers, loved this guy so much, they had to try to write him into the movie. He ended up playing uh, the part of Inspector Todd. And this guy, actually, he ended up having a movie career based on this, and all he was doing was just being brought in. He was an active cop when he was brought in. He was brought in to actually uh, you know, consult on the movie, and he ended up quitting, becoming an actor. And at one point, I think he actually ran for the mayor of Detroit. He didn't win the, <laughs> the election, but he ran, and it was it's it's just it's unbelievable. So it t- kind of ties back into this. I'm sorry for going off topic a little no. bit there, but it's it's interesting to see how Cops that are brought in to be consultants end up getting into movies, and sometimes they can actually do very well. So yeah, these guys Farina. doing as yeah, exactly, Dennis Farina as well. These guys do such a great job that they are they're able to parlay that into a new career, and uh, uh, it's something that I think uh, you know deserves to have a tip of the cap here at the bar because uh, it's um, it, that's not an easy thing to do, uh, and and coming into a role like this, especially with guys that are established, that are real true pros, and Roy Scheider and Gene Hackman and Tony Lovejanko yep. and, and the the actors that were in this film, uh, really a nod to them. But we digressed enough, and we'll go uh, you know essentially back into uh, the. Um, uh, the, the, the action of the movie. So those agents have actually worked with Popeye before, and Popeye and Moldering are constantly at loggerheads. They're constantly going back and forth because Moldering blames Popeye for the death of a policeman in a previous case and doesn't really believe Popeye's hunches to begin with. So there's a rivalry going on there. These two just don't like each other, right. and it's going to be fairly obvious that this is going to be a contestuous relationship. Switching back now, uh, Charnier, Nicolie, and Devereaux all arrive in New York City. And Devereaux brings with him Charnier's Lincoln, which is signed for in Charnier's uh, in, instead of them. And they speak pretty good English at this point, but nevertheless, they have an interpreter uh, with them. And Laval escorts Charnier to a police auction of the impounded cars, tells him that, oh, you know, some of them have been abandoned. Some of them have been here for, you know, for a while. Some of them are part of drug busts and, and whatnot. Um, and he and he identifies Lou Boca as the scrap metal buyer for Charnier's business. And that really gives, a, I think, a hint right there that the Bocas have linked up with Charnier probably through this connection. That's that's how these two um, entities are connected. It's probably through that scrap metal business. So now several days have gone by, and they've been monitoring just I think really mundane conversations. <laughs> if you if you want to uh, to be uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, to be honest, the wiretap finally brings Popeye and Russo their first break. Charnier phones Sal to arrange Sal Boca meeting to arrange a twelve o'clock meeting the next day. Popeye, Russo, and Mulderay, they, they all tail Sal to the Midtown Manhattan spot where they're going to, to rendezvous, and they see Sal meeting with Shania and Nicolie. Now, Mulderay follows Sal, Popeye, and Russo. They're all tailing Shania, 
it's dubbed Frog One. <laughs> and Nicolie, as uh, as they walk through the How city, seventies can you get? <laughs> absolutely, I know you can't. It, you cannot beat that. I mean, Frog seventies really, races I mean, can you get? <laughs> exactly, they call it Frog One. Frog it's, One. Yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. Yep. I mean, you know, and, and I apologize to all of our French brethren that are listening to this, but uh, you know, I mean, we've used the word flop, guinea, greaseball, gumbar on here as yep. well. It, yeah, it, it, sorry, it's, folks, we're, we're it just is, we're just quoting here. Exactly. That's all we're doing that's is that's quoting. That's all we're doing just quoting. It's 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 a product of its time period. So yeah. <laughs> I think is the best way to put it. But uh, they stop to eat at an, at an expensive restaurant, and the cops observe. They're standing outside. It's freezing cold. Uh, they're eating terrible pizza with, with terrible coffee, and then just they're really just not in a good mood. But later, Popeye finds out that again, Frog One <laughs> is staying at the Westbury Hotel, but. Mullery still doesn't believe Popeye is onto anything, and that kind of goes back and forth now into a, a pretty good size argument between the two of them. Um, and you can see the, I think you can see the uh, the, the rivalry between these guys starting yeah. to build. Do you think Mullery thought that Popeye may have been onto something and maybe a little bit jealous, or do you think it's just pure hatred for this guy? That no, I, you know, honestly, himself. I've heard that I've heard that question asked before, and and I understand it, but no, I just think it was blind hatred for the 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 cop that was killed early. You know, I just think it was. Yeah. Blind. Just think that he, anything that came out of Popeye's mouth, it was just going to be garbage to him now, and and that's yeah. that's what it was. I, I don't think there was any jealousy, or you know, he was up, he was the, the man keeping Popeye down. Um. And it's one of the reasons Popeye wanted the big bust is because of all this stuff that happened in the past. He was bleeding for it. He was he was chasing it, you know, probably since this incident happened, you know, to, to clear his name and, and move up. Uh, because if you're not moving up when you're a cop in New York, then, you know, you, you die on the vine. You, you, you're either progressing and moving up the ladder or you're one of those guys that is never going to get ahead unless you go on the take, and that's not the guy that he is. Yeah, absolutely, and, and uh, I completely do agree with you. And I'm glad you kind of set the record straight on that because I've heard that question myself, and I do agree. I think it was just pure and blind hatred at that point yep. uh, for something like that. But the uh, the action shifts to Weinstock's condo, and a young chemist, uh, it was played by Pat McDermott, tests a sample of Charnier's heroin, and it measures to 89% pure. And there are 60 kilos due to arrive. When cut down into dime bags, it's going to total $32 million with a half a million cash down payment. And Weinstock wants to wait before the switch is made. And Boke is not too happy about that because he believes that Charnier is going to walk away from the deal if Weinstock drags it out for too long. But Popeye continues to pursue this, and the next day he arrives at the Westbury just in time to see Charnier breeze right by Mulderig and Klein and walk into the city without a tail. And mm -hmm. Popeye tails Charnier himself. And he almost loses him at a flower shop, but then he picks him up again at Grand Central Subway. And they play kind of a cat-and-mouse game on the platform, but Charnier manages Another to chase. hop back on the train. Exactly. And he just he gets back on the train right at the last moment, and then he waves goodbye at Popeye, which, you know, that's really, that, that, that's enough to pour. <laughs> that's really, that, that, yeah, that's enough to pour. Like, that's like yeah, he's got the little royal wave right going, you know. Exactly. That, yep. that, that the Queen of England does, and, and he's just, yep. you know, the train yep. just pulls on down. <laughs> it is. It's great. And, and, nice and try, credit, Fernando, credit Fernando Ray for playing this part great. Yeah, oh, you got right. you got to love it. Um, but uh, Sharnia then meets with Boca in Washington, D.C., and Sal 
Cal is followed there by Klein. And Charnier insists that the deal has to be consummated by the end of the week. Boca protests that a little bit and says that his mom pals want to wait. But on the flight back to New York, Charnier expresses his worries to Nicolie. And he points out that Sal's concern about the police is warranted. Like, in other words, there are going to be others. Um, yep. And I think he says that, you know, where he says, I'll take care of them. But he says, no, 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 there are going to be others. Um, and they both agree that Doyle is the main problem. And Nicolie volunteers to assassinate Doyle. And Charnier reluctantly agrees but he's unaware that a fight has kind of broken out between Popeye and Moldering and that Popeye has been taken off the case now by a furious Simonson who is Popeye Doyle's boys, the boss. And right. that really leads to Popeye kind of being removed. And it almost looks like he's pretty much down and out at this point. And uh, Murph from seeing this, I think this is kind of like the turning point in the movie, believe it or not. I, this is, to me, where the plot line has reached its its bottom out, and now the action is going to start to slowly rise back to the climax. Did you feel the same way when you watched that? Yeah, I did. You know, um, uh, Hackman is, is, is sitting there, and he realizes he's being pushed out, and he's not going to let this happen. At this point in time, you know, the badge doesn't matter to him anymore. It's the chase. He was right. He knows that he was right. This is going to go down, and he's going to be the one that does it, whether it gets him killed, fired, or made the police chief of New York. He's the, he's going to be the one that makes this happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we do. We see, you know, Popeye, he's dejected. He's in his, his Brooklyn apartment building, and yeah. he's actually fired upon by Nicolie from the roof. They're actually, they are trying, they're still actively trying to, uh, you know, to kill him. And, Popeye manages to enter the building, pursues Nicolie to the roof, and then back down where he sees Nicolie getting away. Nicolie runs to a nearby elevated train station. He boards the train. Popeye screaming for a, a, a policeman, a, a, any right. type of a cop. Uh, I think it's a transit cop on board to stop him. But as the train leaves the station, the transit cop follows Nicolie, and he moves forward through the train. Popeye doesn't – he's not taking matters into his own hands, folks. He's ready to just – he's going to say, you know what – I have to do this if I want the job done done right. He right. commandeers a Pontiac Le Mans from a citizen that really wasn't too happy about it. Let's no. put it that way. Uh, and Murph, I just yeah, yeah. And Murph, I want to. What are you talking about? I'm a because... cop. Give me the car. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and it really is, and it's it sets the scene. It sets the uh, the stage uh, for. Right probably the most iconic scene in this movie. Anybody that's seen the French connection or hasn't seen it has heard about this car chase. And I think to me, I think this along with bullet, which we alluded to earlier is still, I think this is my favorite car chase uh, yeah. scene in a movie. Um, I bullet, still think it's Diva, the best in movie history. You know, Raiders, yeah. you know, all great. But this, this one is, is, is the quintessential because in other car chase scenes, it's, it's two, it's, it's always two drivers. It's always, Two, um, <clears throat> two or more cars chasing one another. This is a is a, a, a chase scene where where the um, the driver on the street Hackman is chasing a um, a train that is on a clear track. You know, there's there's nothing to stop this train, um, and and he has got to you know uh, slalom his way through the streets of New York underneath this train to chase it and, and everything that's happening around them. It had never been done before. And when, when the, um, when the conductor dies, 
Then he's chasing, you know, an inanimate object that has no fear whatsoever. It's just going, you know, it, it, yeah. it was, it, it was amazing. You know, the, the things that Friedkin put into this, you know, the, the, it, it will never be topped as a, as, as a chase scene ever in cinema. You can't, you can't outdo this one. It, it, it was that, it was that fantastic. And it was all live. The only things that you see, um, I can't imagine mapping this out as a stunt driver. I really well, I can't. actually I actually have some tidbits. I did a little real reconnaissance on this chase scene and All right, the cool. logistics and the behind the scenes on how they actually went in to film this. It was actually filmed without obtaining proper permits from the city. I don't know if anybody knew that, but it oh, was. Oh, no shit. No, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yep. NYPD's technical force helped control the traffic, but most of the control was actually achieved by the assistant directors, and some of the off-duty NYPD officers helped them out as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they had been involved in the actual case, the actual French Connection case. They volunteered to be in this because they wanted the story told, and they actually helped them uh, uh, do this a little bit, but there weren't the proper yeah, permits. They, they needed go the good the... publicity at the time. Absolutely, and they did not go through the proper protocol. So the assistant directors cleared the traffic. They did that for approximately five blocks in each direction while they filmed this. Um, permission was given to control the traffic signals on those streets where they ran the car chase, but at the same time, they continued to illegally chase intersections with no traffic control at all. Wow. So it's a little bit on the scary side to do this. Um, they actually had to evade real traffic at times, folks. So some of what you see is very much scripted. It's very no. much planned. But there are portions of this smoke. where, where yeah, this is live traffic going on here. So they were very, very, uh, you know, they were very Again, that they this is why he's the brains cars, of the you know. operation, folks. You know, <laughs> but uh, no, it is. It's true. And I was actually shocked to read this myself. I really was because I always looked at this and said, oh, this has to be so well planned, so precision. It was so close. It was so, you know, nail biting. And mm -hmm. to find out that they actually did this on a wing and a prayer a lot is really, really surprising. Um there were, you know, a lot of the collisions in the movie, they were real. They weren't planned. Uh, the near miss of the lady with the baby carriage, that was carefully rehearsed, folks. So okay. Before you think that I was, they tried I was to about to, yeah, shot, yeah, that was about yeah, to ask that. You, Please tell me yeah, that was a stunt woman with a, you know, Chucky doll or yeah, some, you know, was, Betsy Wetsy in the freaking the, the carriage there. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no no infants were harmed in the, in the making of this movie uh, or attempted uh, to harm anyway. That was very carefully planned out. Uh, but a lot of these were some, they were really sometimes narrow misses. Um, a flashing police light was placed on the top of the car to warn bystanders, believe it or not. That was really like their, that was their warning. Instead of, you know, someone with a bullhorn going, get out of the way, they placed this up hoping, pe you know, people would actually just adhere to it and they did they mounted a camera on the car's bumper for the shots from the car's point of view so Pacman actually did some of the driving believe it or not a lot of people would probably think that this was completely a stunt driver he did some of it um, but uh, a lot of the dangerous stunts were performed by Bill Hickman um, and Freakin actually filmed some of this from the back seat of the car believe it or not uh, mm -hmm. he operated the camera himself uh, the other camera operators were told by Friedkin not to do it. And the reason why he did it is he says, because you guys are married with children, I'm not. Wow. <laughs> so I guess if you figured okay. if something happened to him, yeah, something happened to him, he was going to put himself in harm's way. goes to show you the dedication and the, the level of um, – 
confidence that he had in his own ability and just the, again, the dedication that he had to this film was really, really amazing. Um, now, the crash sequence uh, during the chase scene at the intersection of Stillwell and 86, that was unplanned. Uh, that was one of those crashes that was unplanned. That just happened oh, no organically. Kidding. It was okay, included cut. because it looked, yeah, it looked because it, was, <laughs> it looked so realistic, <laughs> and it really did. Uh, and here's a little tidbit about the guy whose car was hit. Uh, mm-hmm. This was an actual guy. This was an actual car. Uh, he had just left his house a few blocks away from that intersection to go to work. He had no idea that a car chase was being filmed. Had no idea what was happening. Came home from work and found his his car in shambles and the producers did uh, offer to uh, to pay for uh, the repairs and the bill to the car so after that they did they actually did rebuild and pay for uh, the uh, the car to be rebuilt because he actually didn't want a new one the guy wanted the same car uh, he he actually probably realized that having his car in a movie as iconic as what was about to be made was probably going to be worth more publicity than anything possibly so he says I don't want a new one I want it rebuilt and they did the producers paid to have the car rebuilt wow. so that's a little bit of background on one, in my opinion, one of my favorite scenes in movie history. And uh, thank you, Murph, for the platform to be able to do that. I really, really consider that an honor to be able to break that uh, car scene down. And I dedicate that one to my dad, who loved this scene and always thought yeah. this was one of the, the best car chase scenes he's, that he had ever seen. Uh, and every time we would see a car chase in a movie, he would always say, it's not the French mm-hmm. Connection. <laughs> it's not the French Connection, and it never will be. It never will be. This this movie was fantastic, and and the, the, it was so groundbreaking in how film was made, and I from from casting to writing to the the the, the bringing the cops in and 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 letting them act in it, and also you know in how it was filmed, the the cinematography in this movie, um, the editing in this movie, I think it, it won an Oscar for editing, you know, and rightfully so, you know, just for the, the chase scene alone, it was amazing what they had to do in, in, in that one continuous scene. It was, it was, it was beautiful. It, it was, it's one of my all time favorites and, and I'll never get tired of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely, completely agree. And, after all that, to get back to the action of the film, after all that and the car crash and the the, the chase is complete, it almost looks like Nicolay's going to start to get away a little bit. He slips out unprotected, yeah. but Popeye has a nose for this guy, and he is not going to let him get away, not after everything he just went through. Uh, he starts down the stairs, Popeye corners him, he tries to flee, and Nicolay is indeed shot dead. And at this point, now we see that Popeye and Russo are now back on this case, and they're going to follow Sal because at this point that's their best lead. That's their best way to go about it. They still got to get the dope. Absolutely. And Sal takes the Lincoln from a parking garage to a side street and they stake out the car all night. And at 4, 10 AM, this gang of thieves, I guess is the best way to put it, uh, try to strip it, but they're arrested by a horde of policemen and the car is towed toward a garage. And it's going to be searched as evidence. And the mechanic, uh, Irving Abrahams, plays the uh, uh, the mechanic. He can't find any narcotics in the car, but Popeye just does not want to believe that. Um, right. Devereaux had signed for the car, and Laval. Uh, they argue with the uh, with the garage desk sergeant, um, and Russo at this point notices a 120 pound discrepancy between the car's listed weight and the actual weight, and this kind of sparked something, you know, with the, uh, with them. And the mechanic reveals uh, one area he didn't open up, and that's the car's rocker panels underneath the doors. 
Popeye really like lays into him for not doing that, and then he helps open up the panel, <laughs> and there is the stash, and the car is replaced. You know, at at that point, the stash is replaced, and it's returned to Devereaux. Um, and you know, now the cops are going to be waiting for the dealers to make their final move. So Devereaux again meets with Shania, and it's. He's really, you know, he doesn't want to do any more favors for him. Uh, but Shania reveals that Devereaux is now an accomplice. Like, you're in, you're involved in this now, whether you want to be or not. And Devereaux is like, well, no, that, that can't be. But it's, it's, it's the truth. And it really kind of both, I think, surprises him and terrorizes him at the same time that he is now in, you know, involved in this. And Devereaux walks away. Charnier takes the car himself and drives it towards Island, which is where Lou Boca has his scrap metal, and he directs them to an abandoned factory building, and there the heroin stash is revealed, and it's tested positively. Stash is hidden inside the building, and a cash payment is hidden in the rocker panels of the junker car that Lou Boca had bought. Right. When the deal is completed, the Bocas briefly celebrate Sal drives Shanier back to the city and right into a police roadblock led by Popeye Doyle. <laughs> and Sal drives back to the factory with the police. The police are in pursuit. The mobsters hide inside the main building while Shanier hides in a secondary building off to the side. And a gunfight ensues. And Sal Boca is indeed shot dead. Uh, Popeye hunts for Shanier inside the the other. Uh, it's really like a dilapidated warehouse that they end up going yeah. into. It's you know it really kind of fits I think the mood of the movie at this it point. It does. And Russo joins Popeye, and they appear to have cornered Shanier. But as they approach the room, Popeye sees someone from another door, and he opens fire before Russo can even corner the guy that's now dead, which turns out to be Agent Moldery, um, determining to get. Again, I'm gonna, you know, frog one <laughs> at any cost, and yep. not caring that he just killed a federal agent. Popeye goes through the warehouse, and he believes that that he's still in hiding. And after after he rounds a corner, a single gunshot is heard, and just I think brilliant. I I, yeah. I, I love the way this this scene was filmed. I thought it was just brilliant yeah. in the way that they did it and how they left it cinematography, director's vision, everything about this I thought was really, really great. And it's a sa- it really is a satisfying ending. I've heard some people say it's not that satisfying, but I, I believe think it, it was. I, I thought it was I, fantastic. Yeah, I, I really do. I really think this was. I thought you that know? it left yeah, it, it left you to imagine what happened, but it also mm-hmm. tied everything up. And there is you an epilogue. You didn't know if it was a clean shoot, if it, was, if it wasn't a clean shoot. You just knew, you know, that, that – at some point in time, it, it could have been, it could have gone one way and it went the other way. And it it was, it was fantastic. It just, just leaving it up to the imagination of the, the viewer as to what actually happened around that corner. Exactly. Exactly. And in an epilogue, there is an epilogue to this movie as well. It is revealed that Weinstock and the surviving Bokas either skated or they received just kind of, yeah, you know, uh, peripheral sentences, I think, is, is the, the term that I wrote down. While Devereaux wound up being in federal prison for four years, Chaunier escaped and was believed to be living in France, and Doyle and Russo were suspended from narcotics duty. So all in all, not 
the happiest of endings for all of our uh, you know uh, you know people involved. And right. That's one. That's a great thing about this movie as well is that the bus didn't necessarily have a tremendous happy ending. Yes, everything worked out in terms of being able to bring this down, but right. everybody that, you know, was, not everybody that was connected in this was essentially brought to justice. And I think it really left that out there. And that's life. People to understand. Exactly. And that's there life. There was life's no, this, have a this happy was the, right. This was the genre. This was the, the time, the seventies when, when the happy, you had to have a happy ending went out the fucking door. You know, went right out the window. You didn't have Perfectly to do put. it, man, to to make a great movie. You could send audiences home saying, "Wow, what 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 did I just see? Why wasn't you know? I I mean, you know, as where's the comeback Shane moment or or whatever? Right. You know, it, it was fantastic. I got I got a question for you. All right, yeah. now nobody people keep saying, you know, that there are certain movies that you can never remake. And, you know, this has always been on the list as one of them. Um, now, there was a sequel to this, and it wasn't, you know, as good or, or anything. But I do believe in, in some way, shape, or form that this movie has already been remade. Um, now, take, can you take a guess as to what, what that movie might be that I'm thinking of? Uh, you know, I've, I've heard some theories on this as well. Um I'm going to let you have the floor on this because Thank you. to tell you the truth, well, for two reasons. First of all, right. because I want to hear your wisdom and counsel on this. And second of all, because I'm a little unsure myself, and I'm not afraid to admit that. But uh, I'm going to let you have the floor on this, my friend. Go all ahead. Right. I always thought that the, the Billy Crystal movie, Running Scared, was a remake of this movie, only they turned it into a comedy. That is actually not a bad thought. That really, really isn't. And you know what? It really does fit. If you take a look at the plot line, even with Crystal and Gregory Hines in that as well, yep. uh, kind of, it's almost like a Rousseau and Doyle relationship. Yep. You know, they Only go they down moved to the island. Chicago. Exactly. Really disgusting at the time, Chicago. They even have they even have the chase scene where they're chasing the they're they're on they're on the L. And and yep. they're they're driving on on top of the L and 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 it's fantastic. Um, I always thought you know the first time I saw that movie, I'm like, wow, they they managed to remake the French Connection and and make it funny. <laughs> you know, it's really it it is interesting and it's it, I think it's very very fitting. And again, you know, you we've chronicled you know both those movies before here on Shape at the uh, My Blue Heaven and. Goodfellas. There's a dichotomy yep. there as well. So, yeah, I think so. I think that really fits in well when you take a look at Crystal's character and Hines moving to the islands. It really is very similar to what happens with Doyle and uh, Russo when they're removed from the case. They're kind of down yep. and out. They're not really into being cops anymore. And then something happens to kind of bring it all something back. Something happens bring to them bring them all in. back, man. You know, yeah, they were down in Florida. They were going to, oh, what are you guys going to do? Open a bar? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Exactly. So it's. Uh, it's always uh, uh, interesting to see elements of movies like this kind of come back in. But in terms of being remade, a remake, and I, I'm not right. so much talking about taking the plot, lifting it, and kind of remaking it in an own image. In terms of having another movie come out called The French Connection, which, you know, we've seen heist movies and things like that uh, remade in, uh, in in these terms. Uh, we saw a uh, the, the Michael Caine version of The Italian Job, which was in yeah. the 70s as well. I, I think that was 70s. I don't quite think yeah. that. 60s. I'm, I'm, no, I'm a little fuzzy on that. 1970, 71, and, and then, yeah. God, man, 
really wish you people would let us freaking do that. I put no, I put get Carter out there. That, that's yeah, what I, exactly. I put out a couple of times. I got Michael Caine on the brain and, and how fantastic he was in both those flicks. Go ahead. Oh, absolutely, De- definitely one of the one of the finest actors you'll ever find uh, is yep. uh, uh, Sir Michael Caine and, and what he was what he's and been they, able they to do. And they actually badly remade Get Carter too. You know, that yeah, was, exactly. And, yep. and, exactly, and you see some of these you know remakes, subpar remakes. You know, I'll, I'll be mm-hmm. nice, <laughs> but subpar remakes in terms of these uh, uh, these movies. I think if if it were ever remade it would be a subpar. And and that's not mm-hmm. to say that no one is going to be capable of being able to have that vision. But first of all, I think the movie is very set in its time period. Um, right. And I think to bring it to a modern audience would do it a disservice. We saw that with the uh, uh, with the Italian job. I don't think that was quite brought to the no, level he, that it was, the Michael Caine version, because I think technology and everything had passed it by and it made it really seem very, very passe and really, yeah. I don't think, very realistic, whereas the original was. And it was very... Right. Uh, poignant to its time period. That's what this film would be. And again, where are you going to find a Hackman and a Scheider to be able to pull this movie off? I just think that the the, the camaraderie between those two and the acting that was portrayed in this movie uh, leaves this as one of the movies that I don't think can have a like for like remake. Right. It, to me, it would just never ever measure. Somebody up. would try to, to would try to make Roy Scheider, uh, Brad Pitt. And Hackman, I, I don't even know where they'd go with Hackman. It just it wouldn't Probably work. Clooney. Yeah, Clooney. Yeah, <laughs> put, that, that's it. We we'll just put Clooney and yeah. Pitt in there, exactly. and you know we'll Clooney we'll give him up. There. We'll give Clooney the hat, yep. and you know we'll give we'll put you know we'll we'll get Brad Pitt's shirt off somewhere, and everybody all the women will love it and shit. And it's just like with, with the Italian job. My wife loves the new one. Can you yeah. believe that? She'll watch the new one every year. Hey, honey, the Italian job is on. Was, oh, yeah, is it the one with Michael? No, it's the good one. Okay. <laughs> okay. To which you reply, like, no, well, no, it's not the good yeah, one. The good one is no, the one with Michael Caine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, no, I pick my yeah. battles. Okay, I'll make popcorn, hon. And, uh, I know. And, yeah, that's it. No, you can't have a Mini Cooper. Um, and, <laughs> But no, man, let's put a bow on this one. This is another great show. Definitely, definitely, and uh, I enjoyed this. Uh, again, an Academy Award-winning movie. Uh, Hackman won the Academy Award for this as well. Scheider was nominated. Just, I think, a great movie from start to finish, and if you haven't seen it, obviously we spoiled the whole movie for you if you've gotten to the end, but uh, even if we have, uh, definitely go back and take a look at it. If you're one of the people okay. that doesn't mind an end spoiling and just want to see it for the pure filmmaking ability, I definitely right. highly recommend this one. Please. So. Murph, this was uh, this was always fun. Again, this is a movie that I'm very passionate about. I know I uh, had a tendency to ramble a little bit in this one, but uh, as no, but, no, you, uh, you had to but, catch up. You had to catch but, up. I uh, had my moment of ramble there, and then yeah. you caught up, and life is good, and that's why. And you know, I, the, yeah. <laughs> And I do appreciate your professionalism in carrying me for that little bit that I had to take a step out and take care of a little business here at the Shape Ippy Bar. You know, that's it's just you know it's it's one of those things that happens. Had to, you know? had to lock the door. <laughs> Absolutely, you got to lock the door. Well, the good news is, folks, is that we've come to the end of our uh, discussion on the French Connection today. So. The bar is going to be open in just a minute, and now you can leave. Um, on behalf of Thomas Murphy, I'm Mike DeBate. Uh, we definitely appreciate all of you, um, you know, coming and 
visiting the Shape It Be Bar and listening to us today. Again, you can follow my good friend Murph at tmurph207 on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at M-D-A-B-A-T-E-F-P-C. Uh, these polls have been going pretty well, Murph, so I think maybe we'll do another one and let the, yeah. let the public decide one more we'll time. We'll let the public decide, but you're going to come up with the choices this do. time because I, I keep getting you know semi-disappointed because I keep putting Get Carter in there. <laughs> oh, I will. I'll definitely have that. Who knows? I might... I might include that one in my choices, but we'll see. Uh, I think we'll, you're the only some, one that votes for it. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I do that for you, my friend. I do it all for you. But, uh, you know, at some point, I know Get Carter will come across uh, our uh, viewing pleasure here at the Shea Bippy Bar, uh, and we will do that sooner or later. But uh, watch for our Twitter accounts. Uh, we will be uh, putting the poll up pretty soon. And as always, send your feedback to us. We love to hear good, bad, and different. We love to hear it all. It helps us get better. That's it. That's it. So for Mike Diabate, I am Thomas Murphy. Until the next time the bar is closed, thank you so much for being here. And again, now you.